actually expects you to go and do the job after they've given you a promotion and a raise. That's the way it works. See, there's mountaintops, but they very seldom last very long. But what happens is we all have to face reality. And what we're going to see in this next section of the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 9, we're going to see what happens when the disciples face reality. And the truth of the matter is that reality calls us to do one of two things. When you and I face reality, it causes us to do one of two things. We're either going to, A, we're going to lean in to self-reliance. We're either going to say, you know what, I've got this. I can handle this. This is not going to be a problem. I'm going to lean in to self-reliance. Or, we kneel down before God in complete dependence. Those are the two options when we face reality. We're either going to lean into self-reliance or we're going to kneel down in total dependence. And think about it. Peter, James, and John had just had this amazing mountaintop experience. They were on this mountain with Jesus and they got to see God in all of His glory. They see Jesus revealed at the transfiguration. They get to have a converse, or overhear a conversation with the appearance of Moses and Elijah. They, they literally hear the audible voice of God the Father speaking to them. And then Mark 9, 14, verse 14 starts. Let's read it together. In Mark 9, beginning in verse 14, it says this. And when they came to the disciples. So here's what's happening. We know that only three of the disciples were at the Mount of Transfiguration. The other nine were left in the valley. The other nine were there at the bottom, at the foothills of the mountain. So it says, when they came to the rest of the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. And they saw the scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, saw Jesus, they were greatly amazed. And they ran up to him and they greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about? And so picture this scene. We'll start right there. We'll come back to it. They come down off of this mountain. They come down from the mountain. And, and all of a sudden, they experience this, this movement from the glory of God to this group of people arguing. They, they move from, from the company of Moses and Elijah to chaos and conflict. Sounds like real world, doesn't it? They move from hearing, literally hearing God speak to what we're going to see in just a moment. We're going to, they're going to move from that to the cry of a helpless father. And they're going to move from experiencing the power of God's glory to seeing the powerlessness of the other disciples. Look what happens in verse 17. It says this, and someone, when Jesus asked, what are you arguing with him about? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought to you my son, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes, seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. They weren't able. See, this is an incredible picture of the Christian life. Like mountaintop experiences are great. We all need them. They recharge our spiritual batteries. They reset our walk with Jesus. 
mountaintop experiences help us uh, in our walk. They, they, they reconnect us to God. But mountaintop experiences are the exception, not the rule. You see, the majority of your Christian life, the majority of my Christian life is spent in the valley. The majority of our Christian life is spent dealing with the realities of the lost and fallen world that we live in. And soon after Jesus leaves, I mean, he's only gone for a day, maybe two. The disciples realize just how in over their heads they actually are. Like, think about this picture. You've got, you've got the disciples, and they're facing this incredible spiritual battle. They've got this boy that is demon-possessed, and that, that, that possession causes this child to be thrown, slammed to the ground, begin to foam at the mouth, begin to grind his teeth. And we're going to see in just a few moments to literally try to cast himself into water and fire, to try to kill and destroy him. And, and we see this, and what, what's happening is that the, the disciples, when they face this difficult situation... They realize that it is beyond their abilities and their capabilities. They can't heal the child. Now Jesus has left them there to be his representatives. And now they're discovering just how limited they are. Just how in over their heads they are. Now I want you to keep in mind. Jesus had given the disciples in Mark chapter 3, if you remember. He had given them the authority to go and to cast out demons. Y'all remember that? Jesus said, you go and you cast out demons in my name. And in Mark 6, we see the disciples casting out demons without Jesus present. And yet, in here at Mark 9, we see the disciples unable to cast out this demon. I don't know about you, but I find myself in over my head quite a bit. Anybody else? Been willing to admit that, that, that there are times where we get in over our heads. Like we just talked about it just a few moments ago. But you and I have been commissioned by Jesus to be his representatives to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our family, to our friends. In fact, in Matthew 28, Jesus says, I give you my authority, all authority that has been given to me, I give to you to go out and fulfill the mission. But how many of you feel overwhelmed when it's time to fulfill that mission? I know I do. We get so overwhelmed by the needs that are around us. We get overwhelmed when we come in contact with marriages that are in trouble. With people that are battling and suffering and in spiritual bondage. With family members who are facing terminal illness. With loved ones who are battling addiction. See, we all face our limitations. And we need to pause for just a moment in this text and realize that what Jesus calls you and I to, to be his representatives, is humanly impossible. Think about that. He has given us a task that you and I cannot do on our own. That he has, he has given us a task, a mission that is beyond our abilities. And so picture the scene when Jesus arrives. The disciples have failed to cast out the demon. The scribes are arguing with them. And I'm sure they're accusing them, saying, listen, I, we told you all along this was fake. We told you all along that he was a false prophet. And so they're arguing, and you've got this father that is helpless and, and hopeless and frustrated, and you've got this son that is in a terrible condition uh, with demon possession, and, and Jesus asks him, what are you arguing about? 
And before the disciples could answer him, this voice from the crowd speaks out. And it's the voice of the father whose son is possessed by a demon. And he says, teacher, I brought him to you. I brought my son to you in hopes that you could heal him, in hopes that, that you could restore him, in hopes that you could do something and help us. And, and, and then he describes this terrible scene. And, and what we see, and we're, what I want you to be reminded of is a couple of things to pay attention to. And one is I want you to see just how destructive evil is. It says that it would throw him down, it would cast him down, and he would foam and grind his teeth and, and just see how, how evil is destructive. And it's not just demon possession. It is rebellion, it is disobedience, it is lust, it is gossip, it is pride. All sin ultimately leads to our destruction. All sin ultimately separates us from God. And we would need to understand that you and I have a real enemy whose primary focus and primary goal is to seek, kill, and destroy our lives. And we see this in this text. We see it loud and clear. But there's a second thing that we see in this text is that you and I are powerless to defeat evil by ourselves. You and I can't defeat evil in our lives. We can't overcome sin in our own lives. We can't overcome disobedience in our own lives. We can't overcome the, 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 uh, the, the sin that is in our lives. Now, now listen, we may, we may be able to expose evil. We, we may even be able to temporarily restrain it. But we can't destroy sin and evil in and of ourselves. We can't attempt it through self-reliance. It, it'll never work. And the disciples learn a humble but necessary principle and lesson here. And that is, it's a lesson that is found in John 15. And it's a lesson that you and I need to take to heart. And it is this, that apart from Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. That apart from Jesus, we are powerless. And we know that, right? We know that we should completely depend upon Jesus. Like I know in my own life, I should completely depend upon Jesus. I know I'm weak, but he is strong. I know I'm powerless, but he is omnipotent. I know I have limited resources, but he is, has unlimited resources. I know that I'm inadequate, but he is sufficient. And yet, I tend to rely on myself. And perhaps you do too. Look what Jesus says in verse 19. He goes on to say this. And you know the commandment. Oh, wait, sorry, that's for chapter 10. My bad. Let me go back to chapter 9, verse 19. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus asked two rhetorical questions, really lamenting and rebuking the, the, the faithlessness of this generation, particularly his disciples. And he goes, guys, how long am I going to be with you? How long am I going to have to, to stay here before you get it, before you learn to depend upon me? And Jesus is really speaking to his disciples and he's speaking to us because, listen, their failure was not that they didn't try. It's the exact opposite. They tried their best. And that's the problem. They tried their best. They tried in their own power, in their own abilities, 
to, to deliver this child. They tried to handle things on their own. And I mean, think about it, they'd cast out demons before. And yet they're trying again, once again, to try to cast out these demons. But here's what I want you to know. I want you to see Jesus' grace in the midst of this rebuke. He doesn't look at him and say, get out of here, guys. You're a bunch of boneheads and idiots. He doesn't say that at all. He doesn't say, listen, I'm done with you. But what does he say? He says, bring the boy to me. He's saying, what, you, what I want you to do is what you should have done at the beginning. And bring the boy to me. Bring him to me. In other words, bring all of your problems, all of your troubles, all of your sin, all of your, your angst, all of your decisions, all of your conversations, everything in your life, bring it to me. Which is what they should have done in the, in the beginning. In other words, Jesus once again is calling us away from self-reliance and calling us to complete and total dependence. He's calling us to find our hope and our strength and our rest in him. Look at verse 20. And it says, And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately he convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening? And he said to him, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd was coming running toward them, he rebuked the unclean spirit and said to him, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus, Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. You see, I can't help but read that passage and that text from the point of view of the father. Like as a dad, I can't imagine the anguish and the pain that this dad was going through every time he saw his son seized by this demon. I can't imagine the pain that he experienced every time he was helpless when it came to his son. I can't fathom the hurt of watching his boy suffer like this. And you as parents, you get that. But I also can't read this text without thinking how Jesus felt. Think about this. No one cared more than Jesus. No one had more compassion than Jesus. And I believe that this boy's father could see it in his eyes. That's why he says, if you can, have compassion. If you can, help us. Now, I think it was that, I think Jesus' divine compassion is what led to that father's desperate plea. I think when he understood and grasped just how compassionate Jesus is. It led him to that, that plea. If you can do anything, have compassion on us. If you can do anything, help us. See, it, we often look at that and say, if, like we know Jesus, like if. But yet, put yourself in this father's shoes. 
Think about how shaken his faith must have been in this moment. We don't know what lengths he had gone to to get his son to Jesus. We don't know how often he and, and how much he has prayed over the years for his son to be healed, not to see him healed. Perhaps even the, the, the fact that the disciples failed had crushed his faith even more. And you and, all, you and I all have those moments where our faith is crushed, don't we? It may be a prayer that we pray that is unanswered. It may be, you know, like Paul, a thorn in our side and our flesh that, that, is not, that we're not delivered from. It may be the fact that we prayed for a family member that had terminal illness and, and they, they passed. Or it may be the, that we prayed for marriages to be restored and they're not. And we're going, God, over and over and over again, our faith is getting crushed. Our faith is getting crushed. Our faith is getting crushed. And I think that's the picture I see in this, this dad. That though his faith is small and weak, he still cries out to Jesus. Notice what he does. Even though his faith is weak, even though his faith is small, even though he's doubting in this moment, look what he's doing. He's looking in the right direction. He's calling on the right person for help. The writer of Hebrews tells us this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible for you and I to please God. But how much faith? How much faith do we need? Do we need a lot of faith? Do we need complete faith? No. In fact, Jesus said, a tiny mustard seed that you can put between your finger and your thumb is enough. And I believe in this moment, this dad brings about that much faith. The faith of a mustard seed. And he goes, Jesus, listen, I am going to trust you. You see, church, you need, I want you to understand that it is not the depth of our faith, but the direction of our faith that matters. It is not the, the power of our faith, but the person in whom we place our faith in. Because a little bit of faith, a tiny amount of faith, a mustard seed size of faith, in a great and mighty Savior does amazing things. And that's what we're going to see in just a moment. Because this is, this is an incredible picture in this text of what happens when God's unlimited compassion intersects with our limited faith. That's what happens when, when our small amount of faith comes face to face with God's unlimited power. And Jesus is going to show us in this text that dependence is key. Jesus responds, if you can. And he goes, all things, all things are possible for him who believes. Now, I love this because what Jesus is saying is, like, listen, the problem is not my ability. Jesus is saying the problem is not my willingness. The problem is faith. The problem is your faith. The, 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 the issue is your faith. And if you come to me in faith, all things are possible. But I think it's important that we pause right here because this is one of the most abused verses in all the Bible. This verse of Scripture gets abused by false teachers who say that if you and I have enough faith, God will provide for whatever we want. He will provide for all of our wishes. If you and I will just have enough faith that we have been given this power to name and claim virtually anything that we want. 
And this verse has been abused to say, you know what, if, if it's health that you want, if you just have enough faith, God will heal you. If it's prosperity that you want, if you just have enough faith, God will heal you. And if you don't, if you're not healed and you don't have prosperity, then guess what? Your faith is faulty. Listen, Jesus is not a genie in the bottle. It's not like we can walk up to Jesus and, and rub a little faith on him and, say, and he's going to say, okay, whatever you wish is my command. No. Jesus is not a genie in the bottle. Jesus, in fact, what he's calling us to is complete and total dependence upon him. He's calling us to believe in God's power and God's goodness. Listen, regardless of what you and I desire, God wants us to say, you know what? Your will be done, not mine. God is calling us to say, you know what? I surrender everything I am to you. I admit that you know best. I admit that you know what is best. I trust that you are good and that you will do everything that you desire in and through me. So we don't go to God with our wishes. We go to God with our submission. We go to God with, with dependence and, and complete and total dependence. And here, here's what I love about this. Is that Jesus is ultimately saying this. That the bridge, the bridge between our human weakness and His divine sufficiency is faith trust and dependence see what bridges the gap between our weakness and his sufficiency and his goodness and his mercy is faith trust and dependence that's what bridges that gap and and in this text i believe that the father immediately understood and in one of the most honest confessions in all of scripture he says this i believe help my unbelief. Jesus, I believe you. I believe you. I know my faith is weak. I know my faith is incomplete, but I believe you. Now help my unbelief. I want to trust you. Now help me to trust you. I want to put my faith in you. Now help me to do so. And then he pleads for mercy, not for his son's condition. Notice that. The father doesn't plead for mercy for his son's condition. What does he plead for mercy for? His own faith. He pleads for mercy based on the condition of his own faith. I believe in the mercy. Please help me believe. Help my unbelief. See, this is a, this is a request, church, that God will always honor. If you go to him and say, Jesus, help me. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. That is a request that he will always honor. And I believe that is, on, that is a request that you and I should probably make a lot more frequently. Because you and I all have, I know I do, we all have moments when we forget that God is with us. We all have moments when we forget that he's for us. We all have moments where we do things in our own power, in our own strength. We all have moments where we should live for his kingdom, and we know we should, but we choose our own kingdom instead. We all have moments where we, we, we should follow his will but prefer things our own way. We all have moments where we're tempted to think that we know better than God. And in those moments, we should cry out and say, Jesus, I believe you. I trust you. I want to follow you, but help. Help my unbelief. Help my unwillingness to follow. follow. Help my lack of faith. And, and then when this crowd begins to develop around Jesus, Jesus immediately heals the boy. 
places a no trespassing sign over his soul. He says, listen, I am delivering you and protecting you all in this one moment. But what happens next is incredibly important. You see, the next two verses are really the unanswered questions about this passage. These next two verses are really the elephant in the room of Mark 9, 14 through 29. And here's what it says in verse 28. And when he, that is Jesus, entered the house. So in other words, they've gotten away from the crowd. They've gotten away from the people. He and his disciples are privately meeting. And Jesus has his disciples come to him and they ask him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to him, this kind cannot be driven out, driven out by anything but prayer. Notice what they say. Why couldn't we do it, Jesus? Why couldn't we drive it out? Do, do, do you see, even their question has a sense of self-reliance. Even their question has a sense of self-confidence. Why couldn't we? Why couldn't the nine of us do it? I mean, when I read that, I, I hear them like having confidence in their own strength and their own abilities. It, it almost has a spirit of, of pride rooted in their past accomplishments. Like, why couldn't we do it, Jesus? We should have been able to do it. We've done it in the past. Why can't we do it now? Jesus, why couldn't we do it? That's often my problem, too. Jesus, why can't I do it? Why can't we do it? And Jesus responds with an incredibly powerful spiritual principle. He says this, this kind can't come out with anything but prayer. Now, here's what I don't want you to hear. I don't want you to hear Jesus saying that sometimes you need to pray and sometimes you don't. Like there's going to be some things that are to be released from that are going to need prayer and some things that won't. That's not what he's saying at all. He is saying this at any time. You and I attempt things in our own strength, our own pride, our own self-sufficiency. We've already lost the spiritual battle. Anytime we do anything in our own strength, in our own power, in our own will, we've already lost the spiritual battle. Anything spiritually significant that we want to do, Jesus is saying you have to pray about it. You have to bring it to me. Why? Because you cannot do anything apart from me. You can't do anything spiritually significant apart from me. He's calling us to self, to, to, to disregard self-sufficiency and rest completely and totally in his independence upon him. Now let that sink in for a minute. Let what Jesus said to his disciples sink in. He's saying the problem, guys, is you didn't pray. These men that had walked with Jesus, Jesus saying, like, guys, the problem is you didn't pray. You didn't stop. To pray. You didn't realize that, that faith that brings power is a faith that prays. And they don't pray. They fail to pray. Why? Because, and here's what we need to see. We need to understand that faith, trust, and dependence. What we just talked about. That, that bridges the gap between God's divine omnipotence and our human weakness is faith, trust, and dependence. And that faith, trust, and dependence is only experienced and only exercised through prayer. Why? Because what does prayer do? Prayer helps me realize that I'm not in control. That's why Jesus is calling them and saying, guys, the reason you couldn't do it is because you didn't pray. 
Because prayer causes me to abandon my self-reliance. Prayer, when I, when I pray about things, I am abandoning the, my hope in myself. My trust in myself. I'm getting rid of that. I'm abandoning that. I'm laying aside the fallacy of my own strength and wisdom. See, if I'm not praying about anything, if I'm not praying about things in my life, guess what? I'm doing it in my own strength and wisdom. I'm trusting in Eric as opposed to trusting in Jesus. Because prayer is all about dependency. If we're not praying about things, guess who we're trusting in? Ourselves. Because prayer is all about dependency. I believe that that is why prayer is one of the most difficult spiritual disciplines you and I will ever engage in. That's why prayer is so hard. Because the moment we pause to pray, guess what we're saying? Jesus, I can't, but you can. And if you're anything like me, I hate saying those two words, I can't. That's why prayer is such a difficult spiritual discipline. Because it requires dependence. And we've been raised our entire lives from the time we were little children to be what? Independent. And yet we become a Christian and God says, nope. What you've been taught about being independent, I want you to be dependent. But it's not on your parents anymore, it's on me. That's why Paul said to the Thessalonian church, he said, pray without ceasing. In other words, we need to constantly, continually, over and over and over again, remind ourselves of our own dependence upon the Father. And that's what Jesus is showing us, because I believe the true test, the true test of our spiritual walk is our prayer life. I believe the true test of our spiritual walk is our prayer life. And I think one of the greatest challenges to our spiritual lives is prayerless Christianity. Is trying to live out our faith without praying, without seeking Him. I mean, I think, I was thinking about this week, how many times do I fail to pray? How many decisions do I make in the course of a week where I don't just pause to pray? How many conversations do I have in the course of a week where I just don't stop to say a brief Nehemiah-type prayer as I step before someone? How many times in my life, in this week, do I have I attempted things without prayer? Far more than I would care to admit. And I believe the longer you and I walk with Jesus, the easier it is not to pray. And here's what I mean. I think the more biblical knowledge we gain, the more understanding we have of theological truth, the more we practice external spiritual disciplines and habits, it is tempting for us to subtly become self-reliant. And to be just like these disciples who are trying to do God's work, but do it in their own strength, and as a result, they fall flat on their face. And I think we attempt that far too often. I think that's part of the reason we live powerless Christian lives is because we're not depending upon him in prayer. And so here's what, I'm, here's what I want to do. I want to challenge us as a church for the next 21 days to pray. 
You're going, Eric, why 21 days? What, what's the significance of 21 days? Well, they just some studies have shown that 21 days creates a habit. And if you do something every day for 21 days, it'll, it'll produce a habit, and you're more likely to continue to do it than not do it. And so for the next 21 days, my challenge to each and every one of us is to, rem- is to pause for at least 10 minutes every day and pray. Just begin to talk to Jesus. If you're like, what do I pray for? Read, some of, read his word and just pray it back. If you don't know what to pray, if you don't know what to read, just start reading Proverbs, this book of wisdom, and then ask God to instill that wisdom into you. You're like, where do I begin in Proverbs? Just begin, there's 31 days in a, in a month, 30, 31 days in a month. There's 31 chapters of Proverbs. Read the chapter that corresponds with the day. That's just a place to begin. And just pray for that wisdom that is in that book. Or pray your own, 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 your own devotional that you're doing. Just whatever God's word, pray it back to him. That's a great place to begin. Because the reality is, we, if, we need to, if we want to experience God's power, we're going to have to pray. So the challenge, 21 days, is just to, for the next 21 days, let's just pray. Pause. I mean, we'll, be, we'll, we'll send out a text reminder every day just to pause to pray. Set aside 10 minutes in the morning. Set aside time throughout the, the day just to pause and say, all right, Jesus, I'm stepping into this meeting. Help me. That's all you got to pray. I mean, look, look at the Father's prayer. He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Pretty short prayer. And we can do it because here's the reality. The power of prayer is obviously not going to be experienced by us if we don't pray. We can't expect to have the power of prayer without actually praying, church. And so for the next 21 days, I just challenge you to pray. I love what Tim Keller observed in this text. He says, the prayer of the Father is characterized by honesty. So that's a good place to start. Just be honest with God. Whatever you're feeling, listen, He can handle it. If you're ticked off, tell Him. If you're upset, tell Him. Whatever you're dealing with, just be honest. It says it's characterized by honesty, helplessness. Notice the Father's helplessness. If you can, help. Go to Him. Hopeful, though. He's also hopeful. If you can do it, I know you can. He's specific in His passion. But then He says this. These character traits, the believing prayer can be summed up in one word. Humility. So for the next 21 days, my encouragement is just for us as a church to humbly go before the Father in prayer. And I believe that when we do that, we will realize that it is all about Jesus. And it all depends on Jesus. And we will begin to experience the power of prayer. Just like the Father did in this story, we will begin to experience the power of prayer. And just like the family I'm going to talk about now, we will begin to experience the power of prayer. See, we're going to close out our service today with baptism. And we're going to close out our service with um, uh, a story that as I was preparing this message that goes right alongside this text. You see, several, I guess probably two years ago, maybe, maybe, maybe slightly less, Stan comes to me and goes, Pastor Eric, I want you to pray for my grandson. And his grandson, John, would attend church every once in a while. And I've already talked to John. He knows I'm going to talk about him. Most of us, <laughs> most of us going to be good. Um, just kidding. And so Stan comes to me and goes, Eric, I want you to pray for my grandson. And so John and Sybil, they would come uh, attend, you know, uh, pretty regularly, you know, but but not, not so much consistently, and, and uh, 
then they got, they, he said, I, you know, I really want, Stan's like, I really want him to know Jesus. I really want him to receive Christ. I really, and so he's pleading and he's praying and, and I know the AGs are praying and the whole family that's sitting up here has been praying for John. What you may not know is that uh, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, I had the privilege of marrying John and Sybil. I officiated their wedding. And uh, when we were doing our pre-marriage counseling, um, John comes to me and goes, listen, you know, I'm, I, 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 don't believe in, I don't believe in Jesus. You know, I, and I, I'll continue to come to church if that's okay. I'm like, yeah, that'd be all right. <laughs> and so John tells me, like, look, I, you know, I, I just, I, I have a hard time believing this whole faith thing. I don't get it. I, uh, can I come to your church? Can I continue to come? I'm like, yeah, sure. That's fine. Well, back in January, John and Sybil reach out and they say, hey, can we come to your small group? I'm like, yeah, that'd be fine. <laughs> and so I began to, of course, I've been praying for John. As Stan has been praying for John. His whole family has been praying for John. And I told Nicole and I told Stan several months ago, I said, and I told Sherry, I said, John is getting really close to receiving Christ. I can just, you can just tell that the Spirit was working on him, that the God was calling him, that Jesus was, was wooing him. And so uh, I just said, guys, if, I know y'all been praying. Now let's, let's up the ante. Let's pray even harder and even more. And, uh, and so about... About a month ago, month-ish ago, John comes to me after a small group and says, hey, I need to talk. And I said, I know, I've already talked to your granddad. <laughs> and on a Friday night, I believe it was, John gave his life to Christ. Yeah, this is where we celebrate. Yeah. And so, Stan, I'm going to ask you to baptize John. And I want to ask you to, to come on up, and, and you can do that in just a moment. Y'all can go ahead and start making your way over there. Um, but church, here's, here's, and then James is going to be baptized as well. Uh, but here's, here's what I want you to hear, and I want you to see in this story. You're getting ready to witness the power of prayer. And so as the band comes on up, we're going we're gonna to celebrate this baptism. Because this church is the power of prayer. This is what happens when we pray. Because Stan, you've been praying a long time for your grandson, haven't you? For a long time. But you didn't give up. You kept praying. You kept inviting other people to pray. And look what God has done. And so, John, you can go ahead and step in there. Stan asked me to lead it because he said he would be crying too much. <laughs> and if you know Stan, you know that to be true. One of the most tender-hearted men we have in our church. And so, John, do you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? And do you commit to follow him for the rest of your life? Well, based on your profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your grandfather gets to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
James, you can step on up there, buddy. This is James John's stepson, and he's also getting baptized today. James had an amazing week at youth camp, the times I got to see him up there. And so James, do you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? And do you commit to follow him for the rest of your life? Based on your profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Church, let's stand up. Let's celebrate as we've never celebrated before this resurrection power that we've seen through prayer, faithful prayer of John's family and what God has done. Let's let's worship him. The tomb where soldiers washed in vain was borrowed for three days. His body there would not remain. Our God has robbed the grave. Our God has robbed the Have a great rest of your Sunday, and we will see you all next week. Have a good one.